Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, featuring scientists, practitioners, experts and everyday people with knowledge, tips, experience and great stories to share to help you get a grip of your life. We'll give you insights into a range of subjects, including reducing your stress, improving your emotional intelligence, health and well-being and controlling your negative thoughts. By doing this, you'll be able to improve your resilience, confidence, control and perform better every day to live a more productive and purposeful life. For a free resilience ebook, listen through to the end for details. Here's your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Gutman, who is someone I've been interested to talk to for a while because she seems to be someone with a real interesting take on cognitive behaviour therapy. Uh, for children, adolescents and adults and she's got some very interesting programs running and I thought it'd be great to chat to her in broad terms all about resilience, all about CBT, all about all sorts of different things. So hi Jennifer. Hi, it's so nice to talk to you Russell. And I can hear from your accent, you're in, it sounds like you're somewhere exotic somewhere <laughs> perhaps hot, balmy, exciting. Where are you in the world? Yeah, no, I'm actually just about to be faced with a very large snowstorm in New York City. Really? Well, yes. I don't know if you know that in England recently we suffered from an inch and a half of snow and you know life has come I, to a standstill. I have actually heard that from a couple of clients of mine. <laughs> In fact, there was um, we've been sort of um, very excited because it's been down to a minus ten with Wilchin Wilchin uh, chill factor. Oh, wow! <laughs> wow, is anything running? <laughs> well, I, I, the good thing is we're um, um, as a as a race we're very resilient, but our infrastructure isn't. So we've got rid of the snow now, and we know we've got floods and water shortages. <laughs> oh, you have to be careful. You have to eat ice off of the streets. Exactly right. I was in um, I was in New York once on President's Day about ten years ago when the third third biggest snow, snowfall in the states arrived and it was something like thirty inches of snow overnight and it was it was quite staggering how quickly the um, the infrastructure dealt with things. Right, right. You saw how quickly we manage it. I did. <laughs> Very impressive. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, thanks for joining me tonight. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But how would you describe yourself to someone who, who had met you for the first time? I would describe myself as a cognitive behaviorist who also specializes in mindfulness and does a lot with people on codependency. And, and then also that I, you know, just recently branded my own type of therapy as well called Sustainable Life Satisfaction that has parts of cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness involved in it. So that's, and it's for adolescents and adults, but I also do cognitive behavior therapy for children. Brilliant. Okay. Um, I think it's probably a good place to start by saying, um, how would you define cognitive behavior therapy? I would define it as that I work with people on how to change their thinking so that it that their moods and um, that their moods are most adaptive so that their behavior is as adaptive as it can be in their lives so that their moods don't negatively affect their behavior and that their thinking doesn't negatively affect their behavior. So you particularly work, so well, well that's really interesting, so how would you, 
How, I'm sorry about this, it sounds like I'm a textbook guy, but how do you define moods? So, um, moods are anything, so I usually define moods as anything that is anything other than happy or nothing. I see. <laughs> so, Right. So anxiety, helplessness, hopelessness, sadness, um, anger. There's something that I call a mood event consistency scale that I developed. And it's basically related to mood modulation where I have people rate their moods on a scale of 1 to 10 and compare it to events that are rated on a scale of 1 to 10 and try to have some consistency between mood rating and the event rating over the course of their lives to try to have them see that they can take some perspective on how an event and a mood should be consistent. That's that's an interesting way of doing it because you've wrapped together emotional stuff and mood and um, feelings and sensations in there as well. So it, it, I, I like the way you've done that because actually the word mood is it's not overused in the way that some words are. And actually, you're right, because actually, you can, you can sort of believe that you can do something about your moods as well. Right, especially because you can do something about your moods depending on how you talk to yourself. Yeah. And the more effectively you talk to yourself, the more effectively you can function in your life. And the, the less effectively you talk to yourself, then you're, you're not doing yourself any favors. So, so when you're talking about people's moods, you're not really bothered about what the source of the mood is, what you're, working, what you're more interested in is actually what that person's going to do about that mood and how they're going to change the thinking to affect the behavior. Exactly. I'm really interested in unpacking how they are talking to themselves. And when I say that, I'm very, very particular about language. So I listen very carefully to how people speak, even in a session, because it's amazing how diminishing people's talk can be about themselves. And... If I catch somebody with diminishing language, then that's an opportunity for me to step in and say, see, even the way you said that about yourself is diminishing, and you want to not do that. That's interesting. So you think people are self-sabotaging by the very nature of the, their inner voice? You think that yes, we're, we're exactly. talking yourself out? Hundred percent, their language. Yes. How how do you how do you um, how do you work across um, cultures in that case? Because I mean, we Brits are famous for being quite self-deprecating. And and we sort of look at Americans and think you're massively po you know positive and excited and very you know um, very up all the time. So how how do you take account how do you take account for that sort of variability? Well, I think that Americans only may seem very up outwardly because their self talk is usually not very up. Right. <laughs> I think a lot of people across cultures can evidence a lot of what I would call more existential despair in their self-talk than it would appear outwardly. And I would say that that's pretty much, you know, across cultures. So I have British clients, American clients, Persian clients, Asian clients. And I think that when you really unpack how everybody's thinking about themselves compared to other people, a lot of it is very self-deprecating and reliant on the external world, which is problematic because the external world is fickle and unreliable. And so it's not giving them the feedback that they're looking for in order to reinforce their self-image. So in that way, it can become extremely despairing. So that's interesting, isn't it? So you're saying in a sense that the self-talk you have programs your mood 
Um, and so, there's a, so, there's, so maybe being self-deprecating is is not a great place to be anyway, because it's starting the process of undermining yeah. your mood, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Right. So, if you hear someone talking um, negatively about themselves, what, what, what other than you know, ringing a psychologist or a, a psychiatrist up, what what can we do to help our partners, friends, and children to do something about that? So one of the things that I suggest to people is that when you notice somebody talking negatively, it's important to ask them, if you can stop somebody and ask them where the evidence is for their thinking, a lot of times people have a really hard time coming up with evidence. Yeah, They're usually stymied as to coming up with evidence because a lot of times the comments that they're making are based on assumptions, not evidence. Yeah. So... I would suggest to people that they ask family members, children, colleagues to say if they're saying that they think something's going to happen or they feel like such and such about themselves, I would ask them where the evidence is of that or how they know that is going to happen and, and that past behavior predicts future events and has that type of thing ever happened in the past. Hmm. So that's fascinating. So. I'm just unpacking this in my own mind because it very much overlaps with our work in resilience, this idea of negative self-talk and and such like, as you'd expect. And um, one of the things we find is that children aren't really taught to think in this way. And then sometimes the seeds of later problems are created by, by this sort of parental role model, but also the way that children are diminished or use self-diminishing language themselves. Well, I think that... Part of the problem is that children are taught to look to their parents for external reinforcement, and then the external reinforcement that they're taught to look for is not forthcoming in the rest of the world. And so when that happens, then they're sort of at sea looking for external reinforcement in places where they can't find it. Again, the external world being unreliable for reassurance and reinforcement and then they're, they're not sure how to give themselves the reinforcements and the reassurance you know within themselves for their behavior and then they feel like they're perpetually failing in terms of their performance because they're not receiving the feedback that they have been taught to need yes that's interesting and so so i mean to avoid oversimplifying are you saying that we really need to become more self-reliant and, and, and lead less external validation. Yes. So one of the things that, exactly, so one of the things that I suggest often to parents is that instead of saying to children, I'm so proud of you, it would be great if we could change the way parents talk to children to say, you should be so proud of you. <laughs> um, right. Things like that, you know, so that the, la the language that they're learning is about how they self-evaluate their behavior as opposed to other evaluate their behavior. Right. And it's interesting, I don't know about the US, but certainly the UK, there's very little, there are very few parenting guides that actually talk about this sort of thing. They seem to be much more focused on the physical manifestation of which way up they should be and how hot and cold they should be. But we very rarely talk about actually how to, how to, to parent in a way that's good for sort of future mental health. I wonder why that is. We have some parenting books here, but uh, but I think that a lot of them miss the fact that uh, we create a society of children that are dependent on the external world for feedback, that it will be remiss 
to give. And it's not just parents. I mean, the whole world is set up like that in terms of, you know, uh, soccer awards and we just had the Oscars and Grammy awards. I mean, the whole world is set up to be looking for external feedback for performance that may not be readily available. And that can be a big problem in terms of then how people evaluate their performance and then how that impacts their mood and then that how that impacts their resilience in terms of adverse events. Mm. So you think over-identification with things like um, external feedback and yes. some seeing yourself self-identified is only being only being yes. worthy when you have won an award or won a race or won a prize. Mm-hmm. That's part of the issue, is it? Yes. One, one of the things that I say to people is that, you know, there could be a person working in business A and a person working in business B. They could work equally hard, put in the same exact amount of hours, um, get, you know, the same job done, but if business A happens to have a different board of directors or the economy treats it differently or something happens with business A so they make more money and they're able to give better bonuses or raises and business B is not able to do that. So the person working for business A who did exactly the same job as the person working for business B gets a raise and a bonus and the person for business B does not. The person working for business A is going to say they're successful. The person who works for business B is going to say they are unsuccessful. But they did exactly the same job. Yes. That's a big problem. Yeah, that's, and, and again, that's being overdefined by, I suppose, the feedback loop of reward and bonus is yeah, the problem right. there, isn't it? Yes. Right. So, As opposed to, right. So, so, so uh, an internal, so the, the culture of an organization um, is going to have a profound effect on someone's and the way that managers are managing leaders lead using external validation and those sorts of tools is going to have potentially a very positive or negative impact on, on team members. Is, is that what you're saying? That, but that, if, but that is true in all aspects of life. That could be true at work. That can be true in a family. That can be true in social situations. I mean, basically what I'm saying is that external feedback affects people's view of themselves in all venues of their lives unless people learn to look within themselves to evaluate, did I do the best that I can do regardless of the mitigating circumstances that are out of my control, which is the outside world, which I can't control. Mm-hmm. I can only control me. So you, so this... So, so people pleasing is part of right. one of the challenges, I guess, in your work. Yes. So, so how, right. how how do you how do you deal with things like that? Because the reason people people please is because they're trying to control people and situations, and so in order to control outcomes. Right. And the reason that people want to control outcomes is because of the ex- they want the external reinforcement, except that you can't get external reinforcement by controlling people and situations, because even if you did try to control them, you still aren't con- in control of the outcomes. Yeah. So once you can relinquish people of the belief that they can control the outcomes, because you can't control the people or the situations, and that improves people's belief in their authenticity... And just being their authentic selves, it can be extremely liberating Mm. and also improve people's belief in their inherent lovability, have the sense of self-confidence and confidence. And as that improves, they present more securely in all venues. And then as they do that, 
social relationships improve, work relationships improve, all sorts of relationships improve, and they're bringing a, a lower sense of resentment to relationships also, whether it be work relationships or social relationships, because they don't feel like they're being taken advantage of. Right. So, so really, it's a big, it's a big issue, the people-pleasing thing, would you say? Yes. Right. And, now, and you mentioned authenticity, authenticity, which is a which is all rage at the moment, isn't it? So, so yes. how do how do the people pleasing and the authenticity thing go together? Because when people are trying to please another person, often the way that they do that is to not own their truth, right? Uh, because they want other people to like them and appreciate them and so they will hide some of who they are what they like what they enjoy in order to uh, be endorsed by another person so once they recognize that they can't control what other people or all other people will think about them once they let that go and believe that they're lovable regardless of whether somebody, someone or another person may like or dislike some behavior of theirs, then that will allow them to own their authentic selves and believe that they will be lovable even if somebody doesn't like one or another thing that they may choose to do. So, so how do we create a sense of authenticity? Is there, is there a, I, mean, I, mean, I know we're all obsessed by the idea of a quick fix, but are there some simple techniques to help people think about authenticity? Usually what I say to people is think about, like, own your truth in some situation where you think that someone might not like it and see that you won't be rejected for it. Um, so if you think that somebody's not going to like that you don't go to X event, mindfully explain to them why it doesn't make sense for you to go to X event. And then see that you don't get rejected for it because if you do go, you're going to be resentful. And then that mood is going to cross over to how you behave at X event. But if you can mindfully explain why it doesn't make sense for you to be there, and then you're not resentful, then you will see that they will respond by still accepting you, loving you, responding well to you, even though you feel like you'll be rejected and abandoned if you don't do what you think it is that they want you to do. Yeah, and I can see how that is a, is a problem in a relationship where you're, you're caught in a sort of spiral of maybe two people desperately trying to please each other and, yes. and then sort of losing your own self-identity in a, in a relationship. Yes, exactly. So, so when you say own your truth... How, how do I find out what my truth is? So that is very hard for a lot of people, and I have a lot of clients asking that exact question. And some of it takes people a while to figure it out because they have been so busy pleasing other people that they don't actually know where their authentic self lies, mm. and they don't remember what it is that they actually liked. But some of it starts with trying to remember when you were a child what it was that you liked to do. Some of it is paying attention to where you start to feel resentful and knowing that when you flip over to resentment, your truth definitely doesn't lie there. Right. And so it's paying attention to some cues, like what gets you a little bit excited to do, so some of your truth lies there. What gets you resentful, your truth definitely does not lie there. Right. 
Uh, and so it's asking yourself a lot of questions in order to figure out exactly who you are and where yourself lies. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, a lot of people, we used to focus so many years ago on um, values and beliefs. And, and, yep. and, and they were the they were the all the rage at, 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 or you know, twenty thirty years ago, showing my age now, and um, and authenticity seems to have taken over, and, and and I can see it's very important because it's all it's thought it's thought it's the heart of you as an individual, isn't it? But it's very very hard to to see it for yourself. Is it is it something is it something that somebody else can discover in you? I think people know when you are being authentic and when you're not being authentic yeah, right so how, I, how and, I, and i've heard that a few times so how how is that possible so we can spot it in another person yet we find it hard to see it in ourselves because i think that when you're when people are not being authentic two things happen one there's lack of consistency in their behavior and people yeah. can spot that right and i also think that there's a reduced level of security in presentation. So I think people look a little bit insecure in terms of how they present when they're less authentic. One of the things that I say to clients is the more authentic people are, the more self-confident they are. Authentic people tend to be self-confident and the most self-confident authentic people are the quietest. Nice. So insecure people tend to be louder and Secure people tend to be quieter. Yeah. So the people that are the most comfortable with the authenticity are going to be the ones that you see posting the least on social media. Yeah. They're going to be the ones that are the quietest at a table because they don't have to argue their points because they're so comfortable with their point that they don't necessarily need posse approval for it. And so that's why, you know, those people they're going to recognize that their beliefs are consistent over time and they don't, they don't need approval from other people for them because they just know who they are. They own their truth and they don't need anybody's approval or reassurance about it. Yeah. That's interesting. I remember someone telling me that the difference was confidence is the difference between true self-esteem and showmanship and that often we, could, we often confuse right. one for the other, don't we? Exactly. hundred percent. So, um, Interesting. So how did you get into this world of um, psychology and motivation and such like? Where, where, where was your background, Doc, uh, Jennifer? Well, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist since I was little, since I was like 12. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I always really liked to talk to people. I was fascinated by people. So I always knew that I wanted to do that. And then, and it sort of embraced graduate school as quickly as I could and embraced cognitive behavior therapy. And then when I was in graduate school, I was fascinated by a class on tertiary intervention, but I couldn't figure out how I could possibly do that. And, and so it just sort of was in the back of my mind that I wanted to reach as many people as I could, but I couldn't figure out what I could possibly want to reach them about or what I would even have to say. Yeah. And and then as the years went on, the thing about me that I guess irritated people the most about me <laughs> was that I didn't sort of follow, uh, I'm going to say that I didn't follow the rules necessarily <laughs> insofar as if I got sick or uh, a, 
a family member got sick, I didn't necessarily get better in quotes the way that the doctors would say. So right. if I, if I, if I, broke my arm and I was supposed to stay home from work, I wanted to go back to work, so I would go back to work. Yeah. If I had my gallbladder removed and I was supposed to stay home and get better, I would get go get go back to work and get better. I mean, right. go back to work instead of stay home. Um, I had back surgery and I was told that it was going to be a year recovery and I was like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll get better for a year and I was determined to get better in four months. So... And this would aggravate a lot of people about me because they felt like I was being uh, capricious with my health and I should pay more attention to the rules, basically. Uh, and so, and by the same token, you know, my son had been ill and a lot of doctors had said that he wasn't ill and it ended up that he was and I had, you know, pursued that also despite the doctor saying that he wasn't. So... I tended to just sort of beat to my own drum, and people didn't necessarily like that characteristic in me, although I thought that the defiance was positive. <laughs> well, you could almost say you were being authentic. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so when I started to work on what ended up becoming sustainable life satisfaction, Somebody that was, um, after it was sort of unveiled, somebody that was working with me on it was asking me about all of these events that had happened in my life and was asking how come I just kept barreling through them, like they were, you know, not such a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I think that it was the combination of all of the components that made up sustainable life satisfaction and actually doing those things in my life. Right. that made me sort of what I would consider defiantly resilient and I would consider defiant resilience the ability to see uh, a situation of adversity like as a challenge to conquer and not give in or give up to it and an ability to spring back from it because I believed that I had the problem solving and, and coping ability to do that and and come back from it with like increased strength and more positivity and and hope as opposed to feeling defeated. Yeah. And that ended up being what I wanted to help send the message to people that actually negative things that can happen to people could actually be turned on its head and not look negative, but could actually be positive and make us all stronger. Right. And so, and so the this sort of um, this I don't know how to characterize it. You, you, it's a six episode web video series, but it's it's your concept of sustainable life satisfaction. So unpack that a bit for me, would you please? So sustainable life satisfaction is based on my looking at a lot of scientific evidence and psychological theories, as well as all of my twenty years of sitting with hundreds of clients, and then looking at what I thought was the components that brought about a, a degree of contentment in people's lives that would have lasting impact. And it basically involves mastering six components in a person's life. Right. And those six components are 
closing because most people start a lot of things and don't close them. Or if they close them, they close things in one venue of their lives, but not multiple venues of their lives. Yeah. And closing builds self-confidence. Decision-making. Decision-making is because people have a very hard time not delegating decision-making, but making decisions on their own, and that helps build coping skills. Mm-hmm. Facing fears because people tend to avoid facing fears instead of using fear as sort of your sous chef in life, and that helps build a sense of competency. Avoiding assumptions, which helps people build uh, increased tolerance for the unknown, and it helps people build ego strength. Uh, Reducing people-pleasing behaviors, which you talked about, which helps people reduce the need to control people in situations and helps people improve their authenticity. And then the sixth component is active self-reinforcement, which helps people habituate to this new way of thinking and behaving. And then when people master all of those six things in tandem, they have the ability to view times of adversity as a challenge to conquer and become defiantly resilient. Wow, that's great. I love it. And and, um, and so you've launched this on on YouTube, I see. So tell me... Why why, why there? So what we decided to do is launch it on YouTube um, as a video series where I talk in each one of six series, uh, one for each one of the components. So uh, each one of the videos is about like four to six minutes long, and I talk about each one of the components in, you know, some depth talk about how to start to utilize it in in your life and one was released each month i think we just released the fifth one of the six yeah and then we're going to release a workbook so that people can see it in writing not just um on the youtube uh, on youtube and the reason we wanted to release it there was for this tertiary intervention idea that i had which is how is i going to be able to have as many people as possible be accessible to an idea that I had that I thought would be useful to lots of people across a lot of states and internationally, yeah. which is why I was very excited to get your email. <laughs> um, and, and then it will be followed by a book which will explain even more in depth how to implement these techniques in your life in order to have sustainable life satisfaction result in long-lasting and significant impact in terms of, you know, a lifetime of contentment. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. So still, I, I like the words, actually, because it's, um, it's, it's, it's a more pragmatic... It's a more pragmatic title than some. I mean, life satisfaction is better than all this... You know, having the the perfect life and such like. There's, there's actually been happy, being satisfied with things is a is a more, it's a more useful starting point, isn't it? Than perfection, trying to get the perfect right. life and all that sort of stuff. Right. Well, one of the things that I had felt while I was writing it and developing it was that I had been having an issue with my clients coming into my office feeling like they had failed because they weren't happy, and there were a lot of people suggesting that it was sort of um, a task people could accomplish to become happy or sustainably happy. And I actually don't know that that's an achievable task to become sustainably happy. I think happy is a 
push of dopamine. And although that's great, I don't think that having dopamine on a regular basis is sustainable. And I think that in terms of sustainable life satisfaction, I think that you can have pushes of dopamine and moments of happiness across sustainable life satisfaction when you, you know, there's beautiful sunny day after a whole bunch of rainy days or after your snowy days or you go see an ocean or a sunflower or you know something wonderful happens in a relationship there's plenty of opportunities for dopamine pushes over the course of a life of sustainable life satisfaction but I think to think that somebody can be sustainably happy is um is uh, not a very fair expectation for the general public to try to achieve and I think that it sets them up to feel despairing. And, and I guess you, given your definition you see happiness as a mood anyway don't you? So um, Yes I do. So in other words you can choose happiness whether where satisfactions are more it's a sort of a longer term state isn't it? Yes. Mm, interesting so if people want to get hold of you um, Jennifer or people want to see this video series wh where should they look? So if you want to see the video series, you, if you go onto YouTube, you can just put in my name, Jennifer Gutman or Dr. Jennifer Gutman. And you can also find me on my website, which is GutmanPsychology.com. And then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And for all of those, you can also put in Jennifer Gutman or Dr. Jennifer Gutman and you'll find me on all those the same way. Brilliant. And we'll link, obviously, from that, from our show notes into, into those things as well. Um, Thank you. Excellent. That's been really fascinating. Um, so a key message I think I'm taking from this is this idea of, I love the idea of satisfaction rather than happiness. I love the idea of defiant resilience. I'd like, Thank you. I'd like to steal that term and pretend it's my own. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cursing you that you got there first. <laughs> defiant resilience. Love it. Thanks so much, Jennifer, giving me your time today. It's been really interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed all that discussion Thank about you. authenticity as well. Um, Thank you. I wish you continued success, and I look forward to seeing the book and the, and the workbook as well. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You take care. Okay. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>